good morning. It's time for the Fuzzy Logic Science Show here on 2XX. And today we're heading out across the universe. We're going to be looking at the harmony of the spheres, or the music of the spheres, however you like to put it, because today we're bringing back one of our old-time favourite guests to Fuzzy Logic, Dr. Charlie Line. We have a good day, Charlie. Good day, Rod. And we've got Tim Bavard, who is... A PhD candidate who is working with, with Charlie and has been looking at the work of some people named Titius or Titius and Bode and the harmony of the planets in the solar system. Good morning, Tim. Thanks a lot, Rod. Great to be here. Now, before we kick off, let's have a quick look at a couple of items that have been in the news relating to life, Charlie, because you classify yourself as a Astrobiologist. As an astrobiologist. And actually, before we get into the the news, the term astrobiologist, now there would be, have no such title would have existed maybe 10 years ago, isn't that right? Well, the kind of, Carl Sagan was one of the people who started this in about 1965 or so, So, but I think they call themselves exobiologists. It's a field without any uh, detected uh, subject matter. Would, would that have been a, considered a fringe, perhaps, back then? Well, it depends on who's doing it. Carl Sagan was not really a fringe scientist, and so not really. He was, it wasn't very popular, but uh, he was the one who kind of started it, and with a lot of enthusiasm, it became more and more popular, particularly with the public, because we're all interested in knowing how life got started on this planet and whether we're alone. That you said something inherently fascinating about the study of life, and especially the thought of life occurring outside the Earth. Is that something that really brought you into it? I mean, is it the intellectual thing or is it life in particular that really uh, intrigues you? Well, I, I think we're all interested in who we are. I have a particularly uh, severe case of an identity crisis, not knowing who I was or what I wanted to be when I grew up. And I think that leads you to wonder, well, how in the world did I get here? And trying to answer that question scientifically is something that appeals to me. Now, let's have a look at the news that's been in the paper last week or so, and this is some readings coming back from the Curiosity rover on the surface of Mars, and they've been measuring methane levels, and what I'm hearing is that the level of methane they're getting is much lower than they were expecting. So first of all, what's the significance of methane on our planet, and why does it matter to life? Well, we know that uh, some a large fraction of the bacteria on this planet, well, not a large fraction, but some of the bacteria called methanogens on this planet produce methane. And uh, so it's a sign of life. It's like a biomarker. It would be like uh, going into a room and seeing a lot of CO2 and say, hey, there must be some animals in this room. Uh, so it's a trace gas on this planet. And um, if some alien observer looked at the atmospheric composition of the Earth, they could see by looking at the simultaneous existence of oxygen and methane in our atmosphere that it was out of chemical equilibrium. Therefore, maybe they could conduce, deduce that uh, life was there producing this disequilibrium. And the question is, is Mars's atmosphere similarly out of chemical equilibrium? And if it is, possibly subsurface methanogens of some kind could be producing it. One problem with that idea is that Methane is produced abiologically, in other words, without life, by some mineral reactions, a reaction called serpentization. You need CO2 and you need some serpentine, or you produce serpentine. And so the, we need to know how much of methane is being produced by that reaction, and then to see how much is there, and then subtract the two, and then say whatever's left presumably might be life. So that's the type of very uncertain estimates that so are going into this. Is it, it's a kind of circumstantial evidence that if you see it, it may be a little piece of evidence that suggests that life is active there. Yes, science is so incremental, it's so boring sometimes. <laughs> yes, so it's not like you're going to uh, turn the camera on and then like a face is going to appear back That's in the true. lens. Well, that you actually, Carl Sagan did try to convince the Voyager program, not the, the Viking program, to have floodlights on there. So when it was dark, they could turn the... Maybe there were some nocturnal animals walking around, and I think the battery requirements, the power requirements are so large that he, they decided not to have that. But he was seriously trying to do that. <laughs> So what, what do you think the likelihood of some sort of life being on Mars then? Is it, is it possible? Or I, oh, it, I, think it's, I think it's possible. We did a paper on that about a year or two ago, and what we did was we found that there are regions in the subsurface of Mars which have the right temperatures and the right pressures 
for liquid water to exist. So I'm, well, I'm almost everybody is convinced that there's liquid water in the subsurface of Mars. Whether there are ener- whether there's enough energy being, uh, I guess, filtering down to let's say one meter in depth to provide enough energy for metabol- the, meta- the metabolism of life is another question. So I think it could be there. We're not sure. That's why we're excited. That's why people are spending lots of money to get there and hopefully to drill a, a hole in Mars up to a half a meter or a meter deep to see, uh, well, the regions where there is a liquid water. So if it does occur, what would you say the likelihood what would you say the likelihood of it having a common origin with Earth life? Well, that, the question is, uh, what does common origin mean? Now, some people would say, hey, I'm not related to a tree. But in reality, you are related to a tree. You just have to go back far enough, 1.6 billion years or so. And you say, well, I'm not related to a monkey. Well, yes, you are related to a monkey. You just have to go back about 40 million years or so. So in some sense, everything in the universe is related to something else. Now, when you say, but... People would like to see if there's an independent origin. Now, I, I kind of don't like the idea of an independent origin because even if there's, let's say, life, let's say, go to Alpha Centauri. That, matter of fact, recently, around Alpha Centauri B, Alpha Centauri is a triple star system. Alpha Centauri B has recently found they found a small planet, not necessarily in the habitable zone around Alpha Centauri B. But the question is, now, if there was life there, people would say, oh, it would absolutely be independent of life here. We know that the same atoms exist there, the same uh, molecules exist there, there's glycine and amino acids there. So if we're living in the same universe, in some sense, it's not independent. So we have to be very careful about what we mean by the word independent. Uh, okay, so the fundamental forces of physics and so on apply there as they do here. Well, well so but there's a lot more than just fundamental physics. There's, a, for example, the relative compositions, the relative abundances of elements is probably very similar as well. Also, the type of star that's there is very similar. If they, had, they don't have an X-ray star there, they have a star that's very much like our sun. All right. So also you have to be in the habitable zone, so the distance from that star... To, so there's lots and lots of things, not just the fundamental constants. There's you, maybe there are lots of requirements which, make, um, which produce similarities in the biochemical or molecular evolution that would subsequently occur there. So the word independent is we have to think twice before we use that too independently. Uh, okay, so the starting ingredients may be similar. Oh, there's a lot more than that. I, the, the starting processes. ingredients, the star, the distance from that star, yeah. the gravity, maybe you need, uh, you know, the atmosphere, maybe composition, maybe you need the same, right type of lightning going on there. There's a, it's, not, it's a lot more than... Uh, we share a lot more with the planet orbiting Alpha Centauri B than just fundamental constants. And the processes are similar then? It could be. Could yeah. Be. Now, what do you think about the panspermia idea where the, the life is seeded through things like whizzing through space and, they, and like a comet, for example, has got some complex organic precursors in them and, and it crashes into Earth? Now, because... There is a, another news item which appeared recently, and in fact I've got the comment from the Canberra Times. It says, Comet Meteor Strikes Can Kickstart Life. So the comet tail or the body had some stuff in it, and then the impact into the planet Earth has actually triggered uh, the, the start of life in some way. How do you take that kind of idea? Well, one way to, one simple metaphor to think about life is that there's a, a stream going downhill, and you have a mill, and you want. And if you put this uh, water wheel inside the stream, it can turn the mill, and then it can grind wheat, right? And so, if there's life, is just is one way of putting a water wheel into a stream and doing some work with it, doing some reproduction, doing some metabolism, growing some leaves, for example. And so, but in order to get that mill started, to get that water wheel in place, you need some energy. Energy. You have an energetic requirement. If you're in chemical equilibrium, you're dead. So you have to be away from chemical equilibrium. And so the model here is that some comet hits the Earth, and, and when it does, there's enough energy in the impact to produce some out-of-equilibrium chemistry that then somehow transforms itself into life. That out-of-equilibrium chemistry is something is, a, is probably a universal ingredient to life. We need it, and that can come from either lightning or the impact of a comet or from UV radiation from the sun or from... The uranium decay inside of, inside the Earth deep itself, ocean vents. deep ocean vents. So there are all kinds of energy sources. We know we need an energy source, and what we mean by energy source is out of equilibrium. 
Ah, uh, yes. Uh, energy and life is uh, are fundamentally related, aren't they? And I know it's like I've got some sores on my hands because I fell off my bicycle last week. The and kinetic energy turned into those injuries. <laughs> well, well, of a sort. But but a lot of life is about borrowing or stealing, if you put a, a pejorative a human term on it, uh, acquiring energy from other sources. So the little bugs that started to grow in my skin are trying to take the energy that's mine. Is, <laughs> is that right? And, and in fact. Conversely, I've taken energy this morning for my breakfast. I've harvested it from oats and milk and whatever it was that else that I ate. I don't think you own any of the energy that's coursing through your veins right now. <laughs> well, You're part of the universe, right? I'm sorry. Part of the universe. Look, uh, we, 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 we are skating across... You the belong universe. to the earth. The earth doesn't belong to you. I, I, I'm a temporary... <laughs> Uh, so we say a complex arrangement of atoms that, that is harnessing the energy in some way. In fact, I think you use the term a far from equally rim distributive system. Dissipative system. Dissipative yeah. system. Damn, I thought I got that right. I wanted a brownie point for remembering that, Charlie. You get half a brownie point. <laughs> okay. Look, uh, we, we're going to have a little track here because and our brain's going absolutely flat out. We're talking today to Dr. Charlie Lineweaver, one of my favourite guests here on Fuzzy Logic, and Tim Bavid, who is going to be telling us in a minute about the harmony of the solar system, about the arrangement of planets from the sun, and what does that mean, and what have we learned about that recently here on Fuzzy Logic, and a bit of Beatles now to uh, spice our enjoyment. And a bit of classic Beatles there across the universe here on Fuzzy Logic. And our guest today is Tim Bovede, who's studying his PhD, and Dr. Charlie Lineweaver from the Planetary Science Institute, the Research School of Astrology. No. <laughs> oh, no, I mentioned the astrology word with Charlie. Astronomy and astrophysics and the Research School of Earth Sciences at the ANU. And no, we do not endorse astrology here on Fuzzy Logic in any sense. Now, Tim, we were talking... Oh, we're going to... Uh, talk about uh, Titius Bode. Now, Titius and Bode are different people in the history of science. Well, who, who was Titius, first of all? Well, he was a... Uh, he wasn't particularly a strong astronomer. He really had one good idea, and that was this rule that he came up with where he determined the spacing of the planets in the solar system. And what I mean by that, he actually just noticed that they were spaced in a particular way. And the reason he didn't get a lot more credit for it was the strange way that he first came out with the idea. And he didn't actually publish it and say, this is my idea. He was writing the German translation of a French book, which was just called The Contemplation of Nature. And in this translation, he inserted the passage and he didn't give any credit himself. So when when was he? I mean, he's not a recent guy. Okay, he goes no. back to 16-something, I think. 1766, so almost 250 years ago. What, what sort of person was he then, really? So he's not an astronomer, right? Yeah, so he, he dabbled in science a bit, but he and he held positions at universities, uh, but he wasn't... He wasn't a full-time scientist. I, I don't know too much about the guy personally. I only know, you know, the work that he did. N n never, met, never met the guy. No, no, no. <laughs> okay, but so, so he noticed this kind of... Uh, I like the kind of the artistic take on it, you know, the harmony of the spheres or the music of the spheres. There, there's some kind of resonance in the spacing of the planets, right? So what, what, did he, what was his idea? Well, he, what he, what he pre uh, predominantly did was notice this particular pattern. And so the spacing of planets in our solar system follow this specific pattern. And what he really did... He highlighted that there was a huge gap in this pattern, and that was between Mars and Jupiter. And his, his words at the end of this phrasing where he, he talked about this pattern was, surely the divine creator would not leave you know, such a gap in his, <laughs> in his design. Is it kind of reminiscent of the early geographers thinking there must be a great Southland on the planet? Because, but but that, that's much less scientific because I don't think yes. that had a real scientific basis to it. That was just like a, an aesthetic feeling. Yeah. But in this case, 
it has a sort of an aesthetic angle to it, doesn't it? But it actually has a mathematical basis as well. Yeah, that, that came a bit later. That's where Bode comes in. And he was reading this German translation of this French book, which sort of didn't have much to do with astronomy at all. And then he found this passage, and he, he was really interested by it, so much so that he sort of took the idea on as his own without giving credit to anyone else. And he started talking about this pattern, and he was a big advocate for it, saying that he also thought that surely there, there must be something here. Um, and he became associated with the law, so with the rules. So for a long time it was known as, as Bode's Law. But it, it sounds like Bode did the heavy lift here and the Taisha Spate had the germ of the idea, didn't really flesh it out. Is that, is that right? Well, uh, Taisha did say that, that there was probably a planet there and he gave the initial idea, which in a way is the hardest thing to do. And Bode, Bode took that idea and he, he refined it much more. He said, OK, if there was a planet there, this is where it would be. And he, you know, uh, talked about the law a lot with other astronomers and, and made it popular. But nothing really happened. Every, everyone was a bit sceptical, saying, oh, that's kind of nice, but it's probably just a coincidence. Just a nice idea. Yeah. Well, what's our sample size? Oh, it was only one solar system that we knew about at yep. the time. Although there were, what, eight or nine planets? Oh, how many planets? Well, up to, up to Saturn was discovered by then, so that would leave six planets, by my count, uh, that were previously that were, that were known at the time. And everything got a lot more serious about 20 years later after the law was first written down by Titius when Uranus was discovered, and that also fit the pattern. Yeah. And so then they suddenly went, oh, maybe, there's, maybe there is something a little bit special to this. And that really triggered a search for this missing planet between Mars and Jupiter. I'm really interested in the idea of the creative spark. There's, there's something that the human mind lets us do where just an idea appears out of nothing. To uh, Charlie, maybe, do you have a thought about where, where do you get your ideas from? Do you have any inkling of, of where those little sparks come from? Oh, I, th I don't think they're sparks. They're more like bubbles coming out of the mud. I think is what <laughs> I think is a better metaphor for ideas. <laughs> they get bigger and bigger, and some of them just pop and turn into nothing, and others start to transform the mud around them in interesting ways, and then you follow them. Uh, and well, I, I sometimes think it's better to have a bad idea than no idea. And often I, I just throw up idea, and it's a bad idea. But I'd rather do that and then have it shot down. But sometimes people look at me and go. What, well, well, what planet are you on? What, what about yourself, Tim? Do you, do you, how do you, what sort of moments in your life are the ones that, that create this, these little bubbles, as Charlie puts it? Is there a time or a place when you, these thoughts come to you? Uh, probably in the shower, maybe. <laughs> That's, but yeah, usually just when I'm when I'm most relaxed and driving over here I was thinking about ways that you know analogies that I could best talk about the history and things like this but I I'm really lucky to have Charlie as someone that I'm working closely with because he has a lot of these ideas most of them are, are usually quite good and this one especially really intrigued me because he said when he first told me about this idea it's like hey there was these guys who used this law 250 years ago to find the asteroid belt in the solar system let's see if we could predict some exoplanets with it Ah, yes, let's get, get into, the, into that in a moment. But I, I still haven't quite finished with the creative spark thing. Because the, the shower you said almost like apologetically, but there is something about in the early morning when I think the barriers are down. And I interviewed a dream researcher and they, there's... there's um, borders or there's some term that they use to say that the that the board the edges of things are, are blurred and you have like things that aren't normally connected suddenly do become connected and the shower I guess is it's, it's in the morning isn't it and when your your mind is in that state so now okay so you we, we've now got a growing body of evidence about extra <coughs> extra solar systems um, what, what do we know? What? How many do we know about? How many extrasolar systems are there? First of all, well, systems. I'd say about over two thousand for sure, because it, it's changing every day. Um, maybe four years ago, talk, talking about planets is a lot easier. Four years ago, there were roughly eight hundred extrasolar planets that were discovered, and now there's over three thousand. So, especially in the last three or four years, 
it's just increasing so rapidly and that's largely due to one particular uh satellite that's in space that's the kepler satellite which is constantly um staring at the same 150,000 stars just checking for planets around all of those particular stars ah now there's a few methods by which they is able to do that and what what are they what are the ones that the interesting ones yeah well originally the the largest one was what we call the radio velocity method or the the wobble method and this is really taking a uh, measuring the color of the star and you if you do this consecutively you if there's a planet around that star with a particular orientation in the sky it'll change the color of the star and the reason is this as the planet goes around that star the it orbits the center of mass of the system which and it doesn't actually orbit the star particularly and the the star is also orbiting that center of mass so the star also has an orbit it's much smaller than the planet. They're like a couple of like a big ice skater and a very small ice skater yeah. spinning around each other. Yeah, right? and the yeah. the stars in the the middle, it's it has an orbit. It's just very small and it's hard to pick up. But as it goes around that orbit, it's moving away from and then so again a, towards the Earth. It's a blue blue shift, red shift. Yeah, that's right. Blue shift as it moves towards, red shift it moves away. And so if you take enough measurements of the color of that star, eventually you get this nice graph that goes up and down, up and down. And from the change in that color, you can determine the mass of the planet, the period of the planet, so how far away from the star it is. It must be pretty fine measurements. Where, like a small planet orbiting a big lumpy star, that's yeah. that's a very small pull. And it must be even more complicated because there are probably often multiple planets, which is what we're looking yeah, at here. Yeah, that, right? that makes it a lot more difficult because it's a it's a wobble within a wobble within a wobble. And at the moment, it's it's not quite at that stage, just because of, for technology reasons, we can make precise measurements compared to, say, 20 years ago, but it's still not precise enough to detect a large amount of planets. If we were to use this method on our own solar system, if we took, you know, the if we measured the colour of the, of the sun for, say, 10 years, you would detect Jupiter. If you're extremely lucky, you may detect Saturn, but you probably wouldn't, and that would be it. You wouldn't detect anything else in our solar system. And that's just because the precision required is so huge. The Earth, for example, you need a precision of measuring the sun moving at 9 centimetres per second, which is crazy if you're thinking about a star which is so far away. They And this is something that they're aiming for in the next 10 to 20 years, is to measure the star moving away from and towards us at nine centimeters per second that's not much that is tiny okay now so that's that's the wobble method and yeah. the other method is when the planet passes in front of the star isn't it what, what, what do yeah. you call that that's the transit method mm -hmm. and essentially instead of measuring the color which is which is harder to measure than we measure the flux which is just the amount of light so we're taking a, a picture of the star and then we measure the amount of light and you keep doing that uh kepler does it really well it takes pictures every 30 minutes or so and you, all you do you just keep measuring the amount of light from that star and if there's a planet around that star again in a with a particular orientation from our view from earth it may pass in front of the star which will dim the amount of light for a small amount of time that we receive from the star and, and those of us who we remember the transit of Venus uh, earlier, was it last this year? Last year? Can't remember. Last year. And, well, it's a tiny, tiny speck in front of this very yes. big star. So yes. we would never detect a Venus, I imagine. It had to be something pretty, pretty big, wouldn't it? Actually, the precision allowed in space by Kepler is, is really impressive. They've detected a planet that's smaller than Mercury around another star. Really? Yes. Wow. And, and if the planet has uh, an atmosphere, does that have an effect or is it just way, way too small a measurement? I'm, I'm just kind of imagining it on the fringe of the planet, you can see the, the, the atmosphere passing. Yes. Well, we're, in theory you can see that, but we don't have the technology to make that precise measurements yet. Okay. All right, so now let's go back to the harmony of the spheres. Yes. So we, we now know there's, what, 3,000-odd planets or planets out there yep. and some number of planetary systems. And so you've decided to, you and Charlie, have applied uh, Titius Bode's uh, laws 
to examining that and what have you found? Well, we found surprisingly that the exoplanet systems that we're looking at, which are systems that contain at least four planets, at the time of the paper there were 68 of them, uh, four years before the paper there were zero of them, so we really couldn't do this until a couple of years ago. Uh, we found that they actually obey this relation much better than the solar system does. And so really, even though the asteroid belt was found in the solar system from this law, it doesn't even obey the law really well uh, compared to other star systems. So in a way, we expect that this law will be more successful around other stars than our own sun. Wow. So that, that's amazing. So in other words, you could look at one of these planetary systems and you'd have a pretty fair guess, like we did with the, our own solar system, that really we, there ought to be something in that location. It's not necessarily a planet now between Mars and Jupiter. It's actually not no. a planet, is it? No. It's it's an asteroid belt. So, But that's that's a little, gets a little bit tricky, uh, whether they're was a planet there or there would have been a planet there if jupiter was wasn't as massive and you know Im- impacted um that orbital space as as a planet was trying to form uh, yeah. so, so it's either it never made it as far as a planet got ripped apart by tidal forces yeah. or well, well that's that's what was disrupted in some way its formation was disrupted perhaps yeah so okay now before the show, you, you did explain to me that you haven't really looked much at the causes of this. So why is it that the harmonies, inverted commas, are occurring? But, but what's your speculation on this? What we found is we think it has something to do with uh, period ratios between planets. And by that I mean if one planet is going around the sun with a 10-year orbit and another planet is going around the sun, or any star, with a five-year orbit, then we would call that a two-to-one period ratio, because the, you know, the ten is twice as large as the five. And it looks like in planetary systems, uh, it, at least in the systems that we've been looking at and applying this rule to, that there seems to be a somewhat common uh, period ratio between the planetary pairs in that system. So in the solar system, for example... It seems to be centered around 2.5, which means if one planet has a 10-year orbit, then we would expect the next one to be somewhere around 25 years, 10 times 2.5. And then the, the planet after that would be 25 times 2.5. And this isn't a perfect rule, just because planetary formation is a messy process yes. in general. Um, and so it's my hunch, at least, Charlie will probably have different ideas, is that this dominant period ratio gets established early on in the sol- in the star system during planet formation and somehow for some reason this tends to propagate between all the planetary pairs I, I find this an interesting idea because it's interesting the way order of some sort emerges out of complexity out, out of chaos and, and one of my favourite anecdotes is one of my favourite physicists who's no longer alive, and we would have got him on fuzzy logic, uh, Richard Feynman. And I remember him describing in one of his books about how he was working on the Los Alamos project, and they invited him to go to the processing plant where they're, dis- they're, uh, what's, they're using centrifuges and stuff to extract the plutonium from whatever. And one thing he was looking at was in all the pumping around pipes and stuff, there must have been fluids and salts and things you know, going around these machinery, that it could, in all of that, accumulate in some places, that there were places where the density might have been sufficient and they were worried or they wanted to check that it wasn't going to be sufficient to cause any fission or fusion, fission would have been, fission reaction in that. So, Charlie, do you, do you have any thoughts on, on this emergence of... of patterns out of chaos why is it the universe seems to do this well well first of all i'd like to make a comment that i think that there are excuse me i think there are probably a lot of patterns out there that we haven't recognized we we scientists are good at uh, figuring out uh, exact patterns okay here's a law does it obey this exact law and uh, we're very good at that we found all kinds of them and we call them a law of physics but i suspect that there are all kinds of other laws that are messy or 
interrupted or just wiped clean a little bit, like the Titius Bode relation. I think that's something that, in a perf- in a non-interrupted homoge- homogeneous secretion disc, you would get this kind of law perfectly uh, adhered to. For example, in the compact moon systems, or a very compact system that was, I don't know, less interfered by other stuff migrating here and there. But once you get into a messy system, then you have underlying this pattern that sets itself up, and then it gets kind of messed up. It's kind of like painting a beautiful picture, and then somebody spilling some uh, turpentine on your painting. You can still see the painting. It's kind of not there. And would you call that a relationship? Well, it's not scientific because it's not perfectly adhered to, but I think there's something important underlying that in the pattern that, that is, is the pattern that's under, there's something important underlying the Titius Bode law, but it's just been wiped out a little bit. And to say that because it's been wiped out a little bit, it's a little messy, that it doesn't exist, I think is kind of uh, narrow minded. So we, we typically in nature don't find mathematical equations that fit perfectly to any situation. There's something that comes along and disrupts it and pushes it. And so this, this planetary uh, arrangement, you know, it looks all nice and neat on paper, but in reality there are things that, that disrupt it. So what, what are some of those things that, ha- that happen? Well, planetary migration is one thing. I mean, you get uh, planets don't... uh, What we're really talking about is how a protoplanetary disk evolves into planets, which are then kind of isolated, left stranded, if you will, orbiting the, the host star. And the question is, how? Did, what affects that process? And these uh, having a periodicity, 1, 2, 4, 8, 16, is something that seems to be stable for reasons that people who study computer simulations of planets could tell you why that is. I, I can't. I could try, but I won't. Um, anyway, that there's a stability there, and then something comes along. You know, for example, there's a passing star that comes nearby and, and, and maybe throws a comet by, and that comet passes through and passes near a planet. That planet gets perturbed a little bit out of this nice, stable thing, and then it perturb- those perturbations just work their way into the inner solar system, and then maybe something else passes through. So it's a, life is a messy place. And so I know if you've made plans for your future or something, and then there's a financial global financial crisis, you know, that can put, uh, put a little bit of a, a thorn in your side when it comes to your planning. And so I think that formation of planetary systems is something like that. Ah, uh, yes, yes. The world is, is inherently a messy place, but, <coughs> but, it, but, it, but, it, but it's also an ordered place in some way. We, we might break to a track, and I think it's an appropriate one here on Fuzzy Logic, given our guests, and it's uh, maybe in We Are All Made of Stars, at least I believe we are. And yes, we are all made of stars. We are made of stars here on Fuzzy Logic, and our guest today, Dr. Charlie Lineweaver from the ANU and Tim Boved, who's been looking at the music of the spheres, as I like to call it. Is that the term that you shy away from, Tim, music of the spheres, or is that all a bit too, a bit too fluffy for you science types? Yeah, slightly. Uh, I don't think we've personally used that term when we're discussing it between ourselves, but we used to, we like to say the, the spacing of planetary systems or something a, a little bit more firm. Okay, now... You've talked about how the spacing of the planets seems to follow some sort of regularity. There's some sort of predictability about it. What, what are we able to do with the research? Right. So we have we have this uh, all these planets that are being discovered, and uh, I'm quite interested in in stars which have multiple planets around them, multiple star systems like our own. However, there's many of these only have three, four five planets around them. Our solar system is the largest known planetary system with, with eight planets. And so we we want to be able to find additional planets in these planetary systems, and one way we can do this is by using this this Titius-Bode relation that we've come up with and making predictions if there's any gaps that we can see in these planetary systems similar to how Titius and Bode said that there was a gap between Mars and Jupiter. So has it been successful? Are you able to pin the likely location of planet? And are there more on the way, do you think? Yeah, we, we've made a large number of predictions, and some are quite interesting. We're able to say that there'll be a planet here with a certain period, which, knowing the, what the, the type of star, we can also say the approximate temperature of, temperature of the planet 
And we can also say the size of the planet. So we could potentially say an Earth-sized planet somewhere near the habitable zone of that star. Uh, but there's been one prediction in particular where we've said the location of a planet that we expect. And then a few months later, it came out when this Kepler telescope updated with their latest data. The, there was actually a new planet almost exactly where we predicted that it would be. That's was it, what was that? That pretty exciting to actually know that happened to, to see it come true, right? Yeah, for me that that was an amazing moment. I was really overwhelmed. And and is is it useful for, or being used by other researchers to know where to concentrate their attention so that they once you've got an idea of where you might find something that they can put more energy into looking those particular spots? Yeah, that's right. Because uh, as I mentioned before, with these detection methods. If there's more than one planet around a star, it gets harder and harder to detect these planets because we're talking about the transit method in particular here where you're looking for when the star dims as a planet passes in front. And that's quite easy if there's just one planet around the star or one detectable planet. But if there's many, you get dips within dips within dips and it gets harder and harder to find new planets within that data because the, the light curve is already quite messy. So if we're able to make a prediction and say, if you focus on this particular area and, and look really carefully, you know, it could be rewarding. That makes it a lot easier for the people who are going through these light curves, um, which would, where this planet could otherwise be right. missed just because of all, all of the messiness in that data. So it, it has a practical use, but also I believe, and I think Charlie might have picked me up on this one in our earlier interviews, that a good scientific theory has a predictive ability that it doesn't just it's not doesn't just describe what's there now it allows you to to, to say what might happen in a in a given setting right um, so how confident now are we now do we have a statistical significance to, to the results that you've been looking at to, to know with some confidence that that it's a real thing well it's it's definitely too early for that because we've made a number of predictions and we know for sure one that that was correct and we've heard of, I think, about another five that someone else has been looking at. And we've heard from them. This is a PhD student in Princeton. And she's been going through all our predictions. And she's been looking at the light curves. And we've heard just by email that she's found five of them. Uh, but we don't have any detail because she's waiting uh, to okay. you know, get a paper out of it first. No. But, uh, it, but to answer your question, it's, it's really too early. Uh, we were... But at the same time, it's progressing a lot faster than we expected. I thought after we first published, we wouldn't really hear anything for maybe a year or two as, you know, we'd just have to wait for that data to come out. But really, two months after the final version, you know, we got that first confirmation and then we hear of people who are actively going through the light curves, looking at the locations that we've predicted and searching and actually finding these, uh, these new planets because most of the planets get found by a computer algorithm which goes through the light curves and picks out anything really obvious but it's not able to find these these usually smaller planets now is, is your is your work just taking the, the the mathematics of bode or have you modified it in some way we have modified it because the original relation is uh it it's a bit subtle the the differences between the relation that we've used and the original relation, but there there are some problems with the original relation, and really the the main one is that the location of the first planet isn't important. So what I've found there were some systems where, say there were four planets in the system, the outermost three planets would obey the relation, but then the the innermost planet could be way way away. But because in the original relation, the location of the first planet isn't important, it would say, yes, this system obeys the Tychus-Bode relation. And so we, we modified that so all of the planets in the system oh, so, so have it's, to obey it's the a relation. Refi refinement. Then. Yeah. yeah. Now, there's another facet of planetary systems that you've been looking at. The word coplanar comes to mind. What, yeah. what, what does that mean? Well, essentially, our, the planets in our solar system formed in a disk, and what that essentially means is the sun was at the middle. There was this big ball of gas. It was, it was spinning. As it spins, it flattens out and becomes kind of like a pancake with the sun at the middle. And what we've been asking is how thick are these pancakes? 
And this, this is important because for the transit method, um, you know, we need the we need the planets to pass in front of their star, and whether if all the planets if the thickness of these disks are small, then it's likely that all of the planets around that star will pass in front of the star when viewed from Earth. But if the thickness is quite large, then the orientation of the planets... They're going to be too high or too, could, yeah, too low. They'll, they'll either go above the star or they'll go below the star, and then we won't see them. And this is important for us when we're predicting planets, because we could make all these predictions, but if the thickness of these planetary systems is so large that we're only going to see... like, Then the probability of seeing additional planets is decreased. So we could make all these predictions, and they could all be there, but... If the if it's the case that these planetary systems are thick, then we're we're not going to be able to see them anyway. So really, we're asking the question: How many of our predictions do we predict to see? Uh, right. So they they might be there, but we we can't see them, which is a bit bit of a shame. Yeah. And sadly, they're a bit too far for us to go out and just visit. <laughs> I, I kind of I guess we all all of us who like to look out to the stars, imagine daydream what it would be like to actually go to these places. I yeah. mean, can you imagine looking down at one of these systems from from nearby? I just think it would be endlessly amazing. I, I guess we could do it in a way with uh, the Hubble's telescope images and so on. Do you get that when you when you look up at the sky? Do you get that sense of just wow? Isn't that just amazing? Do you get that too, Charlie? Our team's not. I do all the time. I try to suppress it, though. <laughs> you do. You, you can't live there. You have to buy milk and eat. Now, let's just go back to complexity and, and and the patterns that we were talking about earlier, because we can see patterns. The human brain is really well tuned to finding patterns, and Titius somehow or other in his shower in the morning <laughs> realised that there was a pattern of the spacing of the planets but also we can make a cup of tea and look at the tea leaves at the bottom of the cup and we can discern the, 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 the sacred image in there that, that seems to lead us astray Charlie, do you, do you think there's something that the, the pattern matching abilities of the human is is kind of oversensitive sometimes and that is, is it the scientific method that's meant to prune those things from us how do you yeah, see that yeah, I, th I think the origin of science and the history of science shows that uh, science is essentially trying to get you to not take the patterns that you see too seriously i mean you look at the clouds and you can see faces all over the place and or you uh, i think it's something called heraspicy or something where you throw bones on the ground and you say oh look at the patterns so read the tea leaves i think the human mind and the human imagination is often way too uh, fertile to uh, for science and uh, they're just patterns that people say oh there's a pattern there's a pattern there's a pattern and there really aren't when you look at it carefully and uh, so i think most of science is getting rid of these specious patterns but it, so you, but you still need this original thing in the first place so you need to you need to generate the idea in the so well, i think and, that comes and, naturally that comes and then the, prune it yeah that comes naturally i think yeah now, let, let, let's talk about complexity because you've just written this book, or edited, uh, I should say, edited this book, or co-edited with uh, Paul Davies and Michael Ruse, and it's called Complexity and the Arrow of Time. What, what's the main theme of this, apart from complexity and the arrow well, of time? The, uh, the, uh, uh, the main theme is... Uh well, why did we write this book? There was a meeting sponsored by the Templeton Foundation. Templeton Foundation is a rich religious guy who wanted uh, to give money to scientists to try to find God in science. And so one of the issues that scientists still haven't figured out yet, we're still wrestling with, is what's the origin of complexity? And if you're a religious person, you want to believe that God created the complexity. Scientists can't explain the creation of complexity, therefore that must be God. And that's why it was financed by the Templeton Foundation. On the other hand, uh, I'm an an atheist, and so uh, more atheistic than either of the other two uh, editors, and so it was my job to uh, to say, yeah, right, yeah, right, yeah, right, uh, to many of the contributors there. But anyway, it's a collection of uh, mostly scientists, a couple of theologians, talking about how are we to understand complexity. And the bottom line, from the theological point of view, is if you scientists can't figure it out, then God must have done it. And that's what the conclusion they want to reach is. Ah, okay. Now, the, the the universe seems to want to drive towards complexity. Would you agree with that? No, I wouldn't. Wait, why? Why, Charlie? Why didn't you agree why with that? Why, Charlie? It, it seems that I'm complex, you're complex. How did we get here? Well, have you heard of a pyramid scheme? You've probably heard of a pyramid scheme, haven't you? 
pyramid scheme is when you say, hey, you know what? All I need to do is convince two people to give me $2. And then I say, here's a scheme. You get two people to give you $2. And you get two people to give you $2. And as long as you can recruit new recruits, you will get richer. The people at the top of the pyramid get richer. And the people at the bottom will essentially lose all their money when the pyramid comes to an end. And so I think this idea of developing complexity is a pyramid scheme in the sense that you have energy, you have low entropy energy all over the universe, and it can be extracted. But when something extracts it, it's kind of like the rich getting richer and the poor. The poor are all of the far-from-equilibrium dissipative systems that can no longer form because a preceding complex thing took extracted all the energy and it created more entropy. Let me say that in a, try to say it in a simpler way. You are creating more entropy in the universe than would be the case if you didn't exist, right? So, so, so that means that your presence is preventing other organisms from coming into existence. And what you do, you say, hey, I'm going to get more money, I'm going to get more energy, I'm going to put up more solar cells. And what everything you do is trying to extract energy from the sun or from radioactivity, etc., to what? To produce more of you, to make you more complicated. But that comes at the price of all of the other things that can no longer use that energy to produce uh, other, well, themselves. Uh, waterfalls, convection cells, turbulence, bacteria of some kind. It, in other words... The energy flowing through this universe as the universe goes from low entropy to high entropy is a natural source of low entropy energy that produces structures. These structures can get more complex if they learn how to get even more of that low entropy energy. But that precludes the production of other things, the poor things that haven't even got begun yet. So the whole thing is a, a Ponzi scheme. That means, however, that the most complicated things are getting more complicated, but it's at the expense of all the other things that cannot get complicated, even, even start to. And therefore, the universe is getting even more higher entropy, getting higher entropy faster than would be the case. And so the entropy is getting simpler, but there are these tips of the icebergs called high points of complexity, like you and me and, and hurricanes and convection cells that are monopolizing the free energy and then preventing other things from coming into existence and making the whole universe poor, except if you look at the rich people and say, oh, look at those rich people, they're getting richer. So a lot of people think people in America are getting richer. Why? Because they only look at the top 1%. But if you look at the bottom 99%, say, oh, it's definitely not getting richer, they're getting poor. So it really depends on your point of view. If you only want to concentrate on the rich, then it's getting richer. If you only want to comp concentrate on the, co on the complex, then yes, things are getting more complex. But I think that's a, a point of view of bias. Uh, I'm, look, I'm not feeling guilty about being a complex organism. You should, you should. <laughs> but, but, but my, my day if job... If you were rich, would you feel guilty about being rich? Uh, well, that's right, yes. But my, my, my day job is in IT, and I see the constant forces pushing systems towards greater complexity, and a good solution, inverted commas, from a human point of view, is a more simple one. So we're always trying to find the simplest possible solution but in, in spite of what you said, complexity actually does exist, like you and I are here. I didn't say it didn't exist. I, you asked whether the universe in general was getting more complex. I said no, because I'm thinking of the entire universe. You are only thinking of your computer program or yourself or you know at the biosphere. These are already complicated things, which are, in fact, getting more complicated. I agree with that, but that's not a very tiny, tiny fraction uh, of the universe. Okay, so I've taken a special case. And You've looked like at the 1%. You've looked at the 1%. Right. And then so it sounded concluded. like... But nonetheless, we, we still exist, so there must be some forces that the benefit... The super-rich do exist, yes. Yeah, but there is a reason why complex things exist. The reason that's why the super-rich exist. That question. means they're, they're able to extract more money out of the system, and then with that money, you can make more money. That makes the bottom people poorer, though. So it's the, a Ponzi scheme. But there are reasons why the complex systems grow in complexity. I think if there is a reason, it's to produce more entropy. I think that's what the reason for any system's existence, for a whirlpool, for example, the, or a convection cell. The reason for, if there is a reason, it, or, or rather, what does it do? And it produces more entropy than would be the case without its that, existence. That sounds frighteningly like a purpose, Charlie. Well, if there is a purpose into any of these structures, I think it is to 
produce entropy, and that's I don't I wouldn't say it's a, it's kind of like a perfume bottle in the room, and then the perfume spreads out, entropy increases. I would hardly say that's a purpose. I say that's what it does, and that's a natural. It's called the second law of thermodynamics, actually. Uh, okay, so now there are things that benefit simplicity as well. So I'm really I'm thinking of say biological life forms. So, mm-hmm. you know, a snail builds up a shell, builds up a gut, builds up the slime producing mechanisms. There's all these things that it adds to its body as it goes, you know, over evolution that that kind of makes it a more uh, a more successful snail. But there are forces which work in the opposite. So I'm kind of visualizing two tensions. One saying make a biological life form more simple mm-hmm. like a, a, a straight bacteria or a virus or something like you and i mm-hmm. is um th- does that fit into the theme of the book uh, yeah i think that the yeah well first of all there are quite a few there are about four biologists in there who discuss this in some detail i think the bottom line is that uh, the purpose of a if there is a purpose to biology and that is to extract free energy from the universe and to produce uh, offspring and sometimes that requires simplicity and sometimes that requires something very complicated no i mean for example a hammer you know no if you invented a really complicated hammer it wouldn't sell so obviously hammers are not evolving towards more complexity However, if in some situations you need more complexity and then the systems evolves that way. Now, when I say need, I mean when you have that sufficient complexity, you can then extract more energy out of the universe and then become the, the top 0.1% of the 0.1%. Uh, sp- speaking of complexity, it has been a fairly complex conversation today. And, in fact, we didn't have run out of time. We've been having such a fascinating conversation. Uh, Dr. Charlie Lineweaver and... Tim Boved, a great pleasure to have you on Fuzzy Logic today. Thank you very much for your time. Thanks a lot. Thanks, Rod. And plenty more coming up on Fuzzy Logic. And to check today's Canberra Times for our Ask Fuzzy column, because I asked a specialist in the United States, do those ultrasound insect repellent devices work? And I think I'm pretty sure my guests here today know the answer to that. But I got a pretty strong response from her. It was funny. And my friend uh, Martin Robinson, who's the naturalist at the Australian Museum, gave me a pretty funny reply. In fact, he said they tested them and the cockroaches laid eggs on them. (laughs) (laughs) Which I laughed. I thought that was beautiful. Uh, Coming up, check out the uh, Bio Blitz event coming up with uh, CSIRO, which is measuring the uh, community science type event. Uh, looking at the biodiversity on Black Mountain Towers. You can get involved with doing that. And we're hoping to be able to do a live broadcast for Fuzzy Logic of that event. And coming up in October, we're going to be looking at a panel, another panel with the stellar guest list, looking at the subject of MOOCs, which is Massive Online Open Courses Learning Over the Internet. And uh, that'll be at the ANU, date details to be announced. Oh, another Ask Fuzzies on the way. Why do some people have thick toenails and some thin ones? What does that mean? And the origin of nectar, flowers, smell, how do you perceive smell? Lots of fun stuff. All right, I think we better go now. Thanks for your company this morning. Enjoy the rest of your Sunday. Catch you later. <laughs>